how is the climate conversation changing in the wake of the COVID pandemic? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. It's been fascinating recently to compare how people are responding to two invisible threats, the coronavirus and carbon pollution. One threat is personal, direct, and close. Touch an infected surface or talk too close to someone, and you could be deathly sick in a matter of days. The other is impersonal, indirect, and far away. Driving your car contributes in some tiny way to future melting glaciers, rising seas, and scorching heat waves. In upcoming episodes, we're going to explore the health, economic, political, and other dimensions of these two crises. Today, we're focusing on the human and behavioral responses. Addressing COVID-19 and climate both require individuals to think beyond themselves. What's expeditious for an individual to do is often just a horrible thing for the community if people do it. Robert H. Frank is professor of economics at Cornell University's Johnson Graduate School of Management. He's a former columnist with the New York Times and author of Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. The coronavirus pandemic has changed the conversation about everything, including climate. Even just a few weeks ago, a few months ago, you saw this extraordinary energy around climate change that I'm worrying now has been evaporated because we've gone from an us everywhere forever mindset to a me here now mindset. Peter Atwater is adjunct economics professor at the College of William and Mary. He studies confidence-driven decision-making and trends in his Financial Insights newsletter. Our reactions to some emergencies may be as much about what we learn as how we learn about them. We don't have a lot of people who are very prominent talking about how scary climate change is, but we do have a lot of people talking about how scary COVID-19 is. Susan Clayton is professor of psychology at the College of Worcester, where she's also chair of environmental studies. She co-authored the American Psychological Association report on psychology and global climate change. All three guests recently joined me from the safety of their homes to explore the human reaction to pandemics and other invisible threats, starting with a tickle in Susan's throat in the middle of the night. I overreacted. I thought, oh no, I have the coronavirus. Um, I'm doomed, essentially. And it took just a second or two for my rational mind to kick in and tell me that that was very unlikely. But it's that instinctive reaction that I think explains a lot of the kind of um, reaction we see among other people as well. And how does that, the reaction to this virus, which is invisible, how do you see that uh, compared to this gas, carbon pollution, which is also invisible and, and deadly and harmful in a different way? How do you compare those two, our, our human responses? Yeah, well, clearly we're responding a lot more strongly to the coronavirus than to climate change. Um, and part of the reason for that is I think disease is a lot more um, immediate, a lot more scary than the idea that we're gradually uh, destroying or, or harming the atmosphere and the ecosystem. So we definitely respond to that idea that our personal health is compromised. But I also think it's important to recognize that um, both of these things, because they are invisible, people are kind of relying on, they need to have the situation interpreted for them. So there's a really big role for the social media for you know, political figures and other people who are prominent and visible to explain to them. In, in one case, we don't have a lot of people who are very prominent talking about how scary climate change is, but we do have a lot of people talking about how scary COVID-19 is. And we'll get to the social media in a minute. Uh, Peter Atwater, you liken this moment where we have this looming threat that you, you liken it to when Hurricane Katrina was barreling down on the Gulf Coast and there's this big, scary thing offshore. It's coming. We can kind of watch it coming our way. How do you compare that Katrina moment to what we've been watching, experiencing with COVID-19? So what you could see was that, particularly from an American perspective, when the virus was contained in China, that, that was the first narrative that went along with that. There you had an existential threat that was far, far away and really, really not a threat with the view that it was contained. And what I could watch and see was the narratives brought it closer and closer to us in terms of proximity. And one of the things about threats is that our anxiety rises exponentially as threats become closer and closer to us from a perception standpoint. And so you could see the level of anxiety turn to panic as it went from 
being afar and contained to being near us to now being among us. Right. I mean, I was a reporter in China in the 1980s and studied China uh, and I've heard of pandemics, but at no point when I read about Wuhan did I anticipate that it would come here and have the impact. And I think uh, maybe I'm ignorant of the science and some people might feel that way about climate change. Robert Frank, how do you see the way individuals are responding to these distant threats and very different invisible threats? Well, I think Susan hit it on the head uh, with the distinction between a, what seems like a distant threat on the one hand, that's the way many people view the climate threat and the, the virus threat, which is really quite immediate. I mean, that you have two weeks from the time you're exposed to it to the moment you might be faced with a, a, a genuine threat to your life. And what we know is that people are just not very good at reckoning how to deal with threats that seem distant uh, many years in, into the future. There's some interesting work uh, by an economist at UCLA, Hal Hurstfield. He shows people pictures of themselves that are digitally altered to simulate what they would look like at age 80 or so. And after ha having had a chance to study your, the image of yourself at age 80, people become much more future-oriented in little experiments that he asks them to make choices between now and later. People are much more future-oriented. So I think it's it's what Pugu called the faulty uh, telescopic faculty. We can't look ahead and put adequate weight on the future. What's changed in recent years, fortunately, is that the extremity of weather events, the fires, the droughts, the floods, uh, have persuaded many people that climate uh, crisis is not a distant phenomenon at all. It's really upon us. And so I think many more people are, are willing to take seriously the fact that we need to take action to try to parry the threat uh, that compared to three or four years ago, it's a much, much big, bigger change than I think I saw coming. So there's a, a important differences on, on time and proximity. You know, someone, a gunshot uh, somewhere in, in a city is one thing, but a gunshot on your block gets your attention a lot more dramatically. Susan Clayton, what's the, about the importance of actually seeing? You know, we hear information, we read, um, but, you know, we live in a very visual age, particularly video, social media. How important is it, you know, to see someone, I watched 60 Minutes, someone being, you know, carried into a hospital in one of those cocoons is like how how important is seeing versus other forms ways of processing information well i think you know robert hit the nail on the head when he talked about um how some things seem very distant and other th things begin to seem very close to us and time scale is one of the things that can make them seem distant or not um and uh, a visual display can also bring it um bring it home and make it much more personal it's not the only way for people to feel that something is close, but it is something that tends to have an impact. We're a very visual species and, um, you know, it, it just a, even a little bit of visual information entering your field of vision will grab your attention. Um, so when we see a striking image, it tends to have a major impact. Journalist Shannon Osaka covers climate change for Grist. She recently wrote an article detailing how the spread of zoonotic animal-borne diseases like the coronavirus have been aided by a warming climate and the destruction of animals' natural habitat. In the decade of the 1950s, about 30 new infectious diseases were reported. And in the 1980s, the number jumped to almost 100. And scientists think that a big part of this is based on how our relationship has changed with the natural world. Our encroachment on wildlife has just dramatically increased. We have deforested large portions of the planet. Our urbanization is impinging on habitats that we used to pretty much leave alone. And a lot of infectious diseases that we think about as being a big deal today, so that includes SARS, MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, and now the coronavirus, they often originate from bats. And as we encroach on sort of wildlife and habitats, we see those bats basically coming more into contact with humans, more into contact with other wildlife that might contact humans. And all of that means that the possibility of a virus traveling from bats to humans goes way up. There was a study in 2017 about Ebola outbreaks, and Ebola has also been linked to bats. 
And this study found that areas of Central and West Africa, which had recently been deforested, had a higher incidence of Ebola outbreaks. And there's a lot of scientists who have been out there kind of sounding the alarm and saying, look, we know that when we are deforesting, when we're doing habitat destruction, but also warming temperatures causes animals to move from their traditional areas. And so that can mean animals coming more into contact with humans, and it can also mean animals coming into contact with other animals, and that can also cause other forms of spillover. What we're seeing now is really not the worst thing that could happen. The coronavirus is not extraordinarily fatal. And so a lot of the experts I talked to said, you know, we should see this as kind of a shot over the bow. The natural world is kind of saying, hey, look, this is the kind of thing that can happen. And there is a possibility that future pandemics could be worse. That was Grist Magazine reporter Shannon Osaka. Peter Atwater, your reaction that this could be, things could be worse, and maybe there's some some uh, messages there that, about our relationship with nature. Well, I think that, you know, when confidence starts to fall, we naturally fall into that cycle of things being worse. We're, we're looking for, you know, conditions to deteriorate even further. It's a, it's something that, you know, we're we're magnetized either to overconfidence or to underconfidence. And right now, I think there's a, uh, you know, in any number of ways, I'm seeing lots of not just reassessment of risk, but potentially an overassessment of risks. Are you saying we're overreacting? No, I'm just saying that with confidence being lower than it has been, we are we are prone to overreact to to things that we view as threats. Robert Frank, there's a, a kind of a backlash now saying, you know, reopen America. We've gone too far. Um, do you think there's a reassessment of risk happening? Well, we certainly know that there are some people among us who are not overreacting to the risk. Uh, I'm sure you, like the rest of us, saw those clips of the revelers in Florida last week. Uh, why should I interrupt my long planned trip to, to for spring break just because there's a virus out there. I'm, I might get it, but so what? I'm young. I'm not going to suffer much from it. So I think there was a, a sort of a clear trail of people who were just not at all concerned uh, or not nearly as concerned as they ought to have been about the risk, if not to themselves, at least to other people that, that even they care about, never mind the people that we all care about. So I think there, there's an upside to being uh, too alarmed. There's a downside to being too alarmed. Uh, if you had to choose between those in the current moment, I'd say being too alarmed is probably the better choice. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about responding to invisible threats. Coming up, looking for leadership in the midst of crisis. I think this is a case where many people are recognizing that you do need to have government help, government advice, government regulations to really get through this. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow Ted Climate wherever you're listening to this. Sponsorship for this podcast is from the new book, Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change, an illustrated guide on how to talk to climate deniers. Dr. John Cook, founder of the website Skeptical Science, takes us on an educational tour through the world of climate disinformation. He provides insightful and often humorous tips for debunking popular myths. Our listeners ask me all the time how to talk to climate change deniers. Now I can suggest a copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change. It's a funny and informative read for people of all ages and great preparation for those holiday dinners with your own cranky uncle. Changing people's minds is a difficult task, but identifying and preventing the spread of misinformation with proven data and scientific evidence can be just as important. Pick up your copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change today everywhere books are sold. For more information, visit crankyuncle.com. 
This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about the invisible threats of COVID-19 and climate change with Peter Atwater, adjunct professor of economics at the College of William and Mary, Susan Clayton, professor of psychology at the College of Worcester, where she's also chair of environmental studies, and Robert Frank, professor of economics at Cornell University's Johnson Graduate School of Management. Robert explains how the notion of behavioral contagions, which he wrote about recently in The Atlantic, sheds light on our responses to both the coronavirus and climate. It's the term that behavioral scientists use for for how ideas and behaviors can spread from one person to another, uh, very much like a virus might spread in a population. Uh, There's some important similarities between how behaviors and ideas spread and how viruses spread, but there's some differences too. One difference is that visibility helps ideas and behaviors spread. So if, if your neighbor has a solar panel on his roof and it's in the front of the house where you can see it from where you sit, that's much more likely to stimulate you to consider an installation than if it were in the back where you couldn't see it. So vi- visibility is a helpful thing in, in behavioral contagion, or at least it stimulates others to mimic what you do. Uh, If we see somebody close to us who's obviously sick, uh, we try to give that person wide berth. We we, we don't want to mimic the neighbor who's sick. We we try to avoid that person. So so that's a a key difference. But other similarities are are abundant. I mean, the idea that uh, what's good for you as a person is often not good for us as a group is a deep similarity between the two cases. So so if you think of the familiar stadium me- metaphor, I stand to see better because the people in front of me are standing. Uh, when we all stand, none of us sees any better than if everybody had remained comfortably seated. That's a collective action problem. It doesn't mean I'm irrational to have stood. I don't regret having stood. If I hadn't, then I wouldn't see it all. But we need some way to restrain what we ourselves do individually uh, to secure a better outcome for the collective, for us generally. And I think that's exactly the problem that we're up against with trying to contain a virus. What's expeditious for an individual to do is often just a horrible thing for the community if people do it. Susan Clayton, does that, would a, a normal person standing up in a stadium, would they feel guilty about blocking anyone's view or feel any sense of responsibility if they're partying on a beach in Florida when they kind of know it's not the right thing? Well, I, I, I can only guess what the people on the beach in Florida were thinking, but I suspect no, because they looked around and everybody else was doing the same thing. Um, so they were getting immediate support from their social context, even if, you know, across the country, people were saying, what are you doing? And, uh, you know, that's one of the things about um, behavioral contagion it's often literally the people who are physically closest to us are going to be most influential. It doesn't have to be just physical distance. It could be people who are closest to us in other ways. So as long as the people who are similar to us are acting in a particular way, we might not care at all what um, other people think about what we're doing. Peter Atwater, there was the Tom Hanks moment yeah. uh, for the coronavirus. Uh, that was certainly, you know, someone who's widely beloved. Kind of uh, tell us about that, uh, that American symbol of what that meant. Yeah. So I think you had with Tom Hanks, it was interesting. Within a half an hour, you had the, the report that he and his wife had been impacted by the virus, as well as the news from the NBA that the Utah Jazz had been infected. And I think those symbols are really powerful and important in terms of bringing that familiarity that Susan discussed very close to us. So suddenly, you know, people felt that if Tom Hanks had it, if an NBA player had it, you know, it, it, it was likely to impact me. And what you could then see was this cascading impact in terms of uh, cancellations and closures. That That to me was one of the major tipping points in this crisis is that through that conveyance, these symbols, the, the, the virus outbreak suddenly felt right upon us. And, and then you saw people respond accordingly. And Susan Clayton, that makes me think of vulnerability. It's like, oh, my gosh, if Tom Hanks can get it, you know, you know Private Ryan can get it. What does that mean about, about uh, a normal person? So talk about you know, the vulnerability and how we s- assess our different vulnerability to these different threats. Absolutely. And it's not just Private Ryan, it's Mr. Rogers of all things. You know, okay. So uh, I think there was that, um, that Tom Hanks was not only somebody that everybody recognized and therefore um, it became much more 
real and immediate, but we do have this recognition probably uh, at some instinctive level that we're all vulnerable to disease. So we're very, um, we, we can feel very threatened by it. We like to uh, avoid things that might lead to contamination. And um, unfortunately, that kind of reaction sometimes underlies a lot of, uh, you know, racist um, responses, particularly in this case, it's the idea that it's a, it's a foreign virus that is invading the American body politic, um, it's certainly affecting some people's reactions. So um, that vulnerability to something coming from outside and something that, um, in the case of a virus, you know, literally enters your body is, uh, is disturbing on a very basic instinctive level. When people feel vulnerable, they're not necessarily feeling confident. And and Peter, you talk about how um, there's certain ages of confidence when this country has taken on big challenges. So tell us about the particularly the the sixties and and the, and how confident you see confidence as related to our national will to take on big challenges. Sure. So when confidence is low, the only thing we care about is me here now, and so all of our decision making is in the context of of physical, relational, uh, time, uh, geographic proximity. And as confidence rises, it is as if we're wearing variable lens glasses and suddenly we feel more comfortable in things that are distant from us. And I think that you saw in the 1960s that being expressed not just in terms of things like the space race and the, the rise of the multinational corporation, but in terms of things like our interest in climate change. I mean, you go back to the, the first environmental days that were, were really the focus. You know, it's part of that we're going to take on enormous challenges. And I think we've seen a similar echo to that um, very recently um, in terms of climate change being on the cover of Time magazine. And it's an interesting concurrence with things like um, you know, SpaceX and Blue Origin that we're interested in, in taking on um, tr you know, transformational uh, activities. Robert, I want to ask you about whether you agree that sort of we're, we're able to tackle right now big things like like climate change. We have a question um, from Susan Barnett on Facebook. You know, how will this pandemic affect attitudes and policies about the ways in which our country can best proceed to deal with climate change? You know, I think a, a lot of the resistance to taking action about climate change is rooted in the fact that it will be very expensive to really make a meaningful dent in the problem. And what this crisis uh, with the coronavirus will have illustrated is that when we need to do something, cost is literally no object. Uh, if we must do something, we can do it. Uh, we're a, a, an incredibly wealthy country. Uh, the, the evidence from the very large and contentious literature on the determinants of human happiness suggests that beyond a certain point, and it's one we've long since passed in, in this country and, and in most of the West, further increases in most forms of private consumption don't really have any real impact other than to raise the bar that defines what we feel we need. Uh, I, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal. I lived in a two-room house with no running water, no electricity. It never felt for a moment inadequate. Uh, if I lived in that house here, I'd be dismayed. I wouldn't want people to know where I lived. I'd be ashamed. Uh, the, the context matters enormously. Everybody wants to succeed. Succeeding is just a purely relative construct. Uh, to succeed means to do well relative to some norm. And if we needed to come up with literally two, three, four trillion dollars a year to, to deal with a threat, we could do that without anybody having to make any enduring sacrifice at all. You know, the, the level of consumption would grow less quickly or would decline slightly for the people at the top of the ladder. And, and that would not be any hardship at all for them to adjust to. Robert, would you be willing to go back now to live in that uh, the conditions you lived in Nepal when you were in your 20s? If that would solve climate, would you do it? Uh, oh, if it if just by my doing that, if that would solve the climate crisis, so of course I would do it. Susan Clayton, have you sacrificed or would you sacrifice for climate? Oh, absolutely. And I think that there's a, a, a big distinction here. If 
if I knew that I myself, by living in a two-room house in Nepal or or in Ohio, um, would solve the problem of climate change, there is no question in the world I would do it, even if I were the only person who who was doing it. But if I thought, if all of us do that, that will solve climate change, and I'm the only one doing it, then I would not want to do it. So um, it's a combination of individual responsibility and also individual efficacy. You know, what what can I accomplish through my individual actions? I think that there are, um, you know, there are really two important things. One is how strongly we are influenced by the behavior of others, and that includes um, whether we're likely to make sacrifices uh, on behalf of the others. We're more likely to if we if we think other people also will. But there are clearly some people who will take these individual actions um, and not wait to see what other people are doing. Um, and I think that's what, you know, for example, Greta Thunberg did and had such a powerful influence for that reason. She didn't say, gee, you know, I'm just one person. What can I do? Nobody else is doing anything. She just went out and did it. And most of us would not do that. But the fact that she did it um, has had an enormous impact. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the invisible threats of COVID-19 and carbon pollution. Why are we responding to the coronavirus more aggressively than climate disruption that is also wreaking global havoc? I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Peter Atwater, adjunct economics professor at the College of William & Mary, Susan Clayton, professor of psychology at College of Worcester, and Robert Frank is professor of economics at Cornell University's Johnson Graduate School of Management. Uh, Robert Frank, in the Great Recession, uh, you know, there were, in the stimulus package, there was a lot of money for renewable energy, that sort of thing. But then when the economy tanked, all of a sudden that appetite, oh, we can't afford to get off fossil fuels now, it'll cost too much. We are in a recession now. It is going to be bad. Morgan Stanley said this uh, recently. They predicted that uh, it could be 13% unemployment, you know, 30% drop in GDP in, in one quarter. This is bad. It's going to be bad. Does that mean that America's appetite for going green is going to be decimated? I think when we're in a, a, a period of slump, the appetite for spending on all manner of things gets decimated. Uh, the The social progress that societies have made has most often come during periods of high economic growth rather than low economic growth. And I think that's been an issue in the climate movement. Many people say we've got to learn to live without growth in order to save the climate. Uh, But I think that's probably not the right way to frame the issue. Uh, What we know is that it's only growth in certain kinds of things that are damaging. And we really do have the policy levers to encourage growth in non-harmful activities and services and restrain growth in the ones that really cause harm uh, and have overall a a healthy rate of economic growth, which we know politically makes it much more likely that societies will spend the money that they need to to make real social and economic change with respect to climate or any other goal we're trying to achieve. Peter Atwater, you study the markets. The markets are, you know, down big time. Uh, you know, is, is it going to be years before there's an appetite for making investments in green infrastructure? The gasoline is now uh, a tickling a, a dollar a gallon, which means we could, you know, that means the SUV looks viable now. I mean, they're talking about negative oil prices potentially, which is just hard to wrap our minds around. But I, but I think that you know, to the extent that confidence remains low, you're going to see intense energy spent on what are the current problems that need to be addressed today. And and so often, and we saw this in 2009, it's about restoring and, and remedying what exists right now. The, the mindset is not towards the future, it's towards the entirely towards the present. It's that knee here now mindset. And so I, I do think that, you know, bold climate change policy action is likely to be on the back burner for some time. And, and, and depending on the speed of recovery, um, that could be years, if not decades. We have a question from Sean Adderley on YouTube. Will the COVID-19 pandemic lead to more people working remotely permanently? That ends up reducing pollution by eliminating commuting. So perhaps there could be some behavioral changes here, Susan Clayton, that might stick and reduce carbon impacts. Absolutely. And I, I wanted to take a bit more optimistic viewpoint, partly because that's something I just try to do in general. Um, 
that one thing uh, that happens in times of a, of a recession is usually that uh, carbon emissions drop dramatically. And so I think that there will be, um, there's already going to be probably some immediate benefits there. And in the slightly longer term, people will get used to doing things differently. I think when you have this kind of, we're at kind of a transition point. And so it will encourage people to, to rethink some things that they might not be willing to rethink if the economy was just purring along the way it had been. And uh, that one in particular, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm guessing, but so many people have had to get used to virtual meetings, virtual business meetings, virtual travel. Um, I think a lot of that will stick and it might help a lot of um, to business practices to become more efficient at that in that way. Peter Atwater, you write about how or talk about how there's episodes of repetition. If this is viewed as a one-time random thing and it goes away and we get through it, that's different than something that repeats like a hurricane after hurricane after hurricane. So how do you think about what, how much this behavioral and social change from this COVID uh, crisis will stick? So I think the, the, the lasting unknown question today is, as we you know handle this crisis, are, have people been traumatized by this? Uh, that perception that it could happen again. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion that we need a we will need a vaccine in order for the population to calm down about the potential uh, risk of another pandemic sometime soon. So I think that 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 vulnerability here with respect to the outbreak is going to be very important. Do we do we look at this as a one-time event, in which case we will treat it as a shock? Or is there some lingering sense that it could happen again? And there the impact, you know, could be quite, quite profound from, you know, people changing their consumption habits in terms of, you know, how much do you stockpile in your pantry? Uh, what are our expectations for businesses, for supermarkets in terms of what is kept on the shelves? So there's, there's, there's the, the, the potential for, for profound change as we consider what, where we were vulnerable coming into this crisis. Robert Frank, uh, we're seeing you know a, a stress on one system right now: healthcare system, financial system. Uh, we think about climate change. Scientists uh, tell us there could be multiple cascading system stresses and failures: food, water, etc. So, you know, how do you think about that and what the economic implications of what we're seeing right now is a big stress, and you know, add on floods in the Midwest this winter. These things could really cascade. Yeah, and I think the the fact of all of those threats being so vivid and so visible now, really, you have to think about that as a possible opportunity. Uh, very, very seldom does any really big change occur except in the wake of some sort of crisis or another. The the Great Depression, for example, was was not solved by the the programs that FDR adopted the the WPA the CCC th those helped but we didn't really get out of the Great Depression until the the massive mobilization that we undertook during World War II and I think once we're uh, in the midst of the downturn that's coming in the wake of this cor coronavirus disruption we're going to be in a, a depression that may even be much more serious and long lasting. Uh, in threat, at least, than the one we faced in the Great Depression. And and that's really an, an opportunity to mobilize, to undertake the kind of public investments that we really need to take if we're to have any realistic hope of parrying the climate threat. The good news is that there are things we can do that would actually hold warming to an acceptable level. It's going to be difficult. It's going to require a mobilization on the scale that we did during World War II. But we did that. We, we got through that. People were not unhappy because they were pulling hard for an objective during those years. Uh, and so creating jobs to undertake the green investment, that's going to be a way forward out of this coming recession. Uh, and I think if we stay focused, we can re really make a good outcome out of this rather than uh, an enduring bad one. You're listening to a conversation about invisible threats, COVID-19 and carbon pollution. This is Climate One. Coming up, empathy, community, and hope. There is an intense desire to understand, and I think there's a real questioning 
in terms of what is true in this environment. And for an invisible threat, that is critical. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. During normal times, Climate One records many of our conversations with a live audience at our modern and green new home on the waterfront in San Francisco. We have suspended public events through May and possibly beyond. When we resume public events and you're in San Francisco, I invite you to come check us out. Our programs are open to the public and listed on climateone.org. We're talking about our responses to the COVID-19 and climate threats with Susan Clayton, professor of psychology at the College of Worcester, Robert Frank, professor of economics at Cornell University's Johnson Graduate School of Management, and Peter Atwater, adjunct professor of economics at the College of William & Mary. Peter sees an evolution in certain social arenas as we respond to the pandemic. You're seeing dramatic change in what it means to be a leader today. And so these are the environments where resilience, empathy, authenticity, uh, reality are critical elements of, of what it means to be a leader in crisis. And so I think you're already starting to see um, changes in where people are going for those messages. I think it's likely to have a major impact in terms of where we're getting our news, how we're dealing with social media. I think there is an intense desire to understand. Um, and I think there's a real questioning in terms of what is true in this environment. I think we've, we've lived through the fake news environment, and now it's going to be a question of where is, where is the truth? And for an invisible threat, that is critical. But Robert Frank, the purveyors of uh, fake news love chaos. And there's lots of, you know, there's lots of people out there fishing and trying to exploit people right now are uh, in using their best judgment. Right. So aren't we vulnerable right now because we're so afraid? And does that bring up our better selves or our more protective, selfish selves? You know, I think it is good to be leery of, of of those kinds of moves. We know they, they were quite prevalent during the 2016 election. We're seeing them again now in individual campaigns. But but I think people are pretty good judges of character in the long run. Uh, and and the, the qualities that Peter mentioned in a leader uh, are not qualities that are easy to fake. Uh, if you are in command of a situation, if you're sleeping four hours a night and you're working with people intensively to get things done. Uh, you, you can pretend to be that kind of a leader for a little while, but it doesn't hold up for very long. I think the, the public in the end will make pretty sound judgments about who to listen to and who not to. Robert Frank, you write about trust in your book and you know, when people tip when they don't have to or pay taxes when they won't get caught. I'm interested in how trust is being you know, built or, or damaged right now when people are unsure of uh, some people are coming together and taking time to connect with people they haven't connected with because they're so busy. And there's also a little bit of distrust. You know, Susan mentioned some of the racial tension. We're afraid now. Does that make us trust more or trust less? You know, I think uh, I do see this as a as a time of coming together uh, on balance. The, there are forces in the other direction, too. But I, on balance, I do think it will be one of coming together. And I think the the issue of trying to do what's best for the community, even though it might not be the most expeditious thing for you to do, is what's going to separate people. Uh, if you if you have something you'd like to do, but you don't do it because you think it would expose people to more risk. Uh, Most of the people you will have helped by restraining your urge to do what was in your interest won't know that you did it. It's like leaving a tip when you're on the road. Uh, You won't come back and benefit from good service the next time because you're not going to come back. Uh, So why should you leave a tip in that situation? Well, the kind of person who takes that kind of action, who, who, denies himself or herself a benefit for the the benefit of the community, uh, in the process of doing that, you become a different kind of person. I mean, we're not born in the world with fixed identities. We become who we are through repeated action. So you become a better person when you do those sorts of things. And here's the key step. Other people have insight into the kind of person you are. If you're the kind of person who would tip on the road when no one was looking, Uh, people who know you probably know that about you, even though they can't have had an opportunity to see that about you. 
And if people regard you as that kind of a person, that's very much in your interest. So I think that shouldn't be your reason for doing the right thing when no one's looking, but it surely wouldn't hurt people to know that doing the right thing when no one's looking changes the kind of person you are in a way that makes others more, more likely to pick you as a member they want to be on their team. Susan Clayton, are people conscious of that sort of thing that, well, you're right, uh, I, I'm doing the right thing by distancing and some person I don't know I'm benefiting and that somehow that's, am I aware of that virtue or is that more subconscious? Oh, I think some of us are. Um, I, I think most people, at least some of the time, are trying to be good people. Now we can you know, engage in a lot of rationalization about how it's consistent with my being a good person to nevertheless do something that maybe it's not so good. But to the extent that we're thinking about it, I think if we really believe that we will be harming others um, by coming too close, then we'll be trying not to do that. Uh, one thing I've particularly been seeing a lot, and you know, and I live in a fairly small community, um, but I've been seeing a lot of um, community cohesion. So I think I want to echo that idea that people are coming together, a lot of emphasis on supporting the local businesses and um the local restaurants and promising to go there more often when they open again, people posting that uh, they have some, you know, young adult children who are home from college, maybe with nothing to do, and they can run errands for people who might need something. So I think this kind of uh, atmosphere does encourage that kind of coming together um, as we recognize our, our dependence on each other. Um, much as we might not want to recognize it, uh, I think we are confronted with that. Jennifer Rubin is a conservative columnist for The Washington Post, and she writes today about uh, consequences for bad actors, noting that there are legal uh, precedents where people sue a friend or relative because they got a communicable disease, uh, raising the question she's talking about, uh, mentions Senator Rand Paul, who was exposed to the virus and then was around other U.S. senators. And because of that, some senators are are um, sequestered and un unable to vote. It's really affecting our national politics right now. Peter Atwater, your, your thoughts on, you know, consequences for bad actors. You know, you know, behavioral punishment. Right now, it's all on our identity and our own conscience. There's no real cost to avoiding a stay-in-place or shelter-at-home order. So I think you're going to see if mood stays low and we start to see the, the formation of clear social norms around what was acceptable, what is acceptable, that you'll see um, substantial penalties and punishments for those that don't fall in line with the the, the social norms that develop. Um, you know, I think it's interesting that we're already seeing um, bipartisan focus around, you know, consequences to hoarders and people who have, you know, selfishly um, taken uh, medical equipment that could have been, you know, better used by others, those who are scalping um, products, you know, online. And so I think that you're going to see a clear social establishment of what it means to be good and bad in this environment. And that that would be, you know, you know, social norms are, are critical to the extent that they both foster and reflect confidence. We're talking about the COVID-19 and carbon pollution at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Susan Clayton, Peter Atwater, and Robert Frank. Uh, all of you being in academia, we have a question from Marcus on YouTube. Will the virus epidemic mobilize youth regarding climate activism? So what are you seeing from your, your students? You're not seeing them now because you're not in classrooms with them. Uh, Susan Clayton. I don't know. I mean, one thing that needs to happen for people to take action is to have the opportunities, I think, to to act together. Um, you know, certainly some individuals will take action by themselves, but for the most part, we really need people to come together in social groups. So right now, while everybody's isolated, I, I don't think we're going to get that kind of momentum. I'm hoping that it may be a result in the, you know, in the medium term of this kind of crisis that the, the students and the young adults recognize that some drastic changes are needed. I think, um, that this crisis may shock us out of our complacency and out of, you know, recognize that we can, we need to shake up the status quo a little bit. Robert Franks is going to ignite people in a way. 
Well, it's the young people who've really seized this issue as their own. Uh, the Sunrise Movement, Greta Thunberg, uh, she, she can't possibly have expected that it would lead to what actually did happen in the wake of her efforts. Uh, and that's the thing. Uh, the, the behaviors in this domain and many others are, are contagious. That means if you take an action, other people may see you take it or may be inspired by your having taken it. And that will influence them to act, and it may fizzle quickly thereafter, but it might not. It, they might act in a way that influences somebody else, and then it might explode in exactly the way that we've seen her crusade explode. And so I think the whole idea that if you take what seems like a small, insignificant action, yes, the direct effect of that is probably going to be insignificant. The world will be the same one way as, as if you hadn't taken it. But the fact is, uh, it might not. And uh, we know that in many domains, if you put solar panels on uh, your roof early in the cycle, four months later, somebody else is moved by your having done that to do it. And then four months after that, you've got uh, four panels. Another four months pass, you've got eight. And after just two years, you've got 32 panels uh, on, on the rooftops just because you made the first move at, at time zero. So I, I think seeing people do the right thing is especially powerful as an impulse to, to get you moving down that same path. Makes our absence of leadership right now, national leadership, all the more, uh, all the more painful. Peter Atwater, your thoughts on whether, you know, youth, because COVID-19 is sucking all the, our, all our mental energy. There's no time. Joe Biden's like out there somewhere trying to run for president. Um, you know, can climate kind of sprout from this and will it ignite your students? So I, what I'm watching really closely is how does this um, overwhelming sense of vulnerability that these young people have been feeling already, um, you know, the, the anxiety level on college campuses is something that, you know, is gotten a lot of attention. And so there's a sense of vulnerability that um, young people are, are sensing. And, and so I'm really curious to see what do they do? Is it aimed at climate change? Is it aimed um, more broadly in terms of uh, you know, corporations and governments? But I expect that coming out of this, we are going to see young people who have said, you know, you, the adults, have have failed to provide certainty and control to the world around us. Therefore, it's up to us to now do that. And so I, I'm very excited by where they start to take things. And you write, uh, Peter, you talk about how uh, anxiety searches peak in the middle of the night and anxiety makes it hard for people to learn when we're so anxious right now. How can we learn and how we can decide that future. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we forget that confidence is all cognitive. And so we have a tremendous amount of bandwidth, all of us right now, that is being exhausted by this unknown, unseeable virus. And so trying to teach students, trying to learn in this environment is, is very difficult. And, and I think all of us need to appreciate the, the challenge of going on with our lives in a routine way amidst a, a, a um, a confidence hurricane, as it were. Well, as we wrap up, I want to ask each of you kind of how you're personally dealing with, uh, you know, this anxiety of isolation, knowing what you know about climate, knowing what you know about COVID, Susan Clayton, how are you kind of keeping your feet on the ground, keeping it uh, together in this time of high anxiety? Yeah, well, I, 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 I wish I could say that I was coping ideally, but um you know, just little things. It's important, I think, to to keep to a routine. It's important. So far, I've managed to get dressed every day, even though I'm not seeing everybody. Anybody, um, you know, to make sure you get exercise, uh, give yourself some some stress free things to do. Um, just the same things that we do to cope with anxiety uh, under other circumstances, but especially to find ways to to keep those social connections going when you have to work a little bit harder at them than you do under normal circumstances. Robert Frank, how are you coping? Well, I'm in quarantine more or less, uh, self-quarantine. I, I was in London giving book talks last week. Uh, probably shouldn't have gone, but uh, it was before they were telling us not to go. The moment I landed in London, I read news 
that the epidemiologists had wanted to tell people in my age bracket not to fly on long flights. I had just been on one. Uh, they had been overruled by the president uh, against giving that advice. So I had to fly back. And on the flight back, uh, with the travel ban kicking in, I was on an absolutely full flight. There were two sick people next to me. I was in the middle seat. And so I've been sitting here for the last week, uh, hoping I don't get sick. Uh, so far, far, I haven't, I guess, with each day, it seemed. But also feeling guilty and trying to think of ways ways to help. I mean, I'm in a, a, a profession where I don't lose any income as a result of any of the moves that have been uh, instituted to, to shut the economy down. I've got uh, ample resources. Uh, what can I do to, to, to make life a little bit less unbearable for the people who aren't in that? lucky situation. Yeah, I think the research shows helping other people may be one thing that can make guaranteed to make you feel good. Peter Atwater, how are you coping? Final word. So I spent a lot of time talking about confidence and particularly talking about environments of underconfidence, which is what this is all about. And so to cope, it's, you know, not only reminding others, but reminding myself that um, these environments tend to be uh, short-lived, but intense. Uh, we've all been in environments where we were powerless and uncertain before. So to be able to say, yes, this is, this will pass, been here before and to not underestimate resilience. Um, you know, we, we really doubt our ability in moments like this and to temper our mean voices. I'm certainly trying to do that to myself that, you know, these are, these are moments that are difficult, but, uh, we will get through them. You've been listening to a Climate One conversation about invisible threats with Peter Atwater, adjunct professor of economics at the College of William and Mary, Susan Clayton, professor of psychology at the College of Worcester, where she's also chair of environmental studies, and Robert Frank, professor of economics at Cornell University's Johnson Graduate School of Management and author of Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. I really appreciate it. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnab Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. Bye.